Today I'll be chatting with Dr. Nicola Guess about how changing your diet can help you manage type 2 diabetes. This episode is the first of a two-part conversation. We'll be discussing diabetes prevention in part two. Dr. Guess has been studying diabetes management for over a decade and has directly helped many people living with type 2 diabetes through her private practice. In this episode, Dr. Guess explains why there is no one best diet for type 2 diabetes, only the one that's best for you. She shares some of the latest research on why even modest weight loss can often be clinically meaningful. Last but not least, Dr. Guest shares practical advice for making positive changes to your diet. Dr. Nicola Guest runs a private clinical practice as a registered dietitian focused on diabetes prevention and management. She's also an associate professor at the University of Westminster, a research fellow at King's College London, and head of nutrition research at the Dasman Diabetes Institute in Kuwait. Dr. Nicola Guess holds a PhD in diabetes prevention and a master's of public health and is trained as a registered dietitian. Please note that this conversation should not be seen as personal medical advice and that any major dietary changes should be undertaken in consultation with your healthcare team. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nicola Guest. Thank you so much for being here. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. So today, um, as we discussed in advance, we're going to be having kind of a two-part conversation. So I think first we're going to be recording um, a little chat about diabetes management, and then we'll have a separate conversation about diabetes prevention. We're just setting the stage sure. so, you know, so, so people know what to expect. Okay. I have so many questions. I guess I should also say this is, as you know, such a broad topic. You could spend your entire career on this. So we're going to narrow it down um, mostly to focus on dietary factors in both of those discussions today. But we'll, we'll touch on other things as they come up. So let's just get, sure. just get right into it. I usually like to start with um, some definitions just to um, orient people. So how, um, what actually, is there a, a very clear definition of type 2 diabetes? Um, yeah, how, what, what are the current definitions right now? I mean, diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, they are defined by blood glucose. So our diagnostic mm. criteria are based around blood glucose. Mm. Um, so type 2 is slightly different from type 1 because type 2 has two main components. The beta cells of the pancreas that normally uh, secrete insulin stop working properly. The second part is insulin resistance. So the liver and the muscles don't respond to insulin. That's totally distinct from type 1, which is an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. And so the, can you be explicit about what, what like the diagnostic criteria look like if you have this number, like, is it just a single test is sufficient or you have to monitor over time at one point in time will tell you all you need to know? Um, so in general, it's diagnosed based on one test and that's mm. because people often have symptoms. If mm. people are asymptomatic, often it's twice. And so there are a variety of cutoffs. If your fasting glucose is above seven millimoles per liter, that's type two diabetes. We now use hemoglobin A1C. That's a, a, an average measure of your blood glucose over a three month period. Mm -hmm. And if it's 48 or above, that's considered type two diabetes. Um, mm -hmm. We also have a random. So if you randomly kind of turn up at your GP or in a hospital and it's 11.1 .1 millimoles per liter, again, that could be diagnostic of, of diabetes. It's nice that there's a, a clear, fairly uncontroversial definition that helps simplify things a lot. Oh, oh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's uncontroversial, but it's, it's oh. clear it, it's set in stone. Yeah. 
Okay, and but different countries agree. Different countries use the same definition. Um, yes. So the, the challenge comes with when we get down into pre-diabetes, and and mm. this is is a fair argument that essentially okay. it is a continuum. I mean, there's okay. really no difference between what's going on if it's six point eight and seven, right? It's just seven is is the cutoff. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so one of the questions I also want that think is useful to think about as we set the stage is, is it? I've I've heard people talk about um, reversing diabetes. So is it truly reversible? So that they would basically erase all, you know, I mean, you could you could bring down those blood glucose measures, but does that actually erase all the um, risks that you might have had while you were in um, uncontrolled diabetes? You know, great question. And I, I guess the short answer is we don't know completely how much of, of the damage you can um, get rid of or, or mm. um, eliminate. Um, the current understanding, particularly if people have had type 2 diabetes for some time, is that there will be some residual damage, whether it's to blood vessels, whether it could even be damaged to the eyes and so forth. But remission, I call it remission because I think it's a it's mm. a more accurate, precise term for what's happening, is such a new concept that we actually don't have data. Now, what we do in the UK, if someone gets remission of their type 2 diabetes, they still um, have to have their checkups, mm -hmm. so their eye checkup and so forth. So we do kind of treat them as though they still have type 2. And really, that's just protecting their health long term and making sure we prevent any complications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what are the main complications that people worry about? So there's the, the cardiovascular side of things, which can be strokes or heart attacks. Um, you also have microvascular complications. So this is things like neuropathy or retinopathy. And this is essentially damage to the nerves long term, whether uh, the innovation is in the eye that can affect your um, eyesight. Um, it could affect your kind of pain, but also sensations in your uh, legs and feet. And this can be a big risk factor for for example, getting gangrene and diabetes is one of the leading causes of amputation because people get an infection. So because their blood flow is affected because their um, extremities in many ways are affected, they can get an effect infection, not realize it because their sensation has been diminished mm. and the infection can get worse and worse over time uh, and develop into gangrene even before a person that can notice or deal with it. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. a horrible disease. So we, even though it's common, people kind of think, oh, everyone's got diabetes now. Yeah. It's actually a very disease to have. Yeah, that's going to say, it, I, I feel like it's in many ways not viewed as super serious because it's so common. So I, I, that's why it's useful to, to think about what, what matters if you don't control it as we then sort of segue from there into how can you control it? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I wanted to focus on the diet um, aspect of it because I know that that's something you've written about a lot. I'm sure you've researched all aspects of it, but I, I'm particularly interested in the dietary side of it. So a lot of people are probably wondering which diet is best for diabetes uh, management. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy. There are people in uh, you know that are very staunchly um, advocating one camp or another. So clearly there's going to be a complicated answer. So I think um, to help unpack the answer, I would... I would find it helpful to for you to speak in terms of some of the metrics of what best is and how do you measure the success of a diet. Are they is it strictly just the blood glucose control or or do you actually measure some of the risk factors for these downstream um, medical sequelae that you're worried about? Anyways, those are just some of the some of the things percolating in my mind. Yeah, that is a great question. I loved how you phrased that. Like, can you can you 
answer about best in terms of what the outcome is, right? Because often mm. people say the best, something good yes. for the gut microbiome might be awful for blood glucose, for example. Yes. So absolutely, we need to consider cardiovascular risk uh, as, as really the ultimate outcome, because this is what eventually kills people. Um, and, and, and so in that sense, many diets can work. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a, a thing that I focus on as a dietitian is it kind of gets a bit more complex as well, because cardiovascular disease is influenced by blood glucose, uh, by blood pressure, uh, by LDL cholesterol, and different parts of the diet affect each of those things, right? So let's say you have a ketogenic diet, um, super low carbs, so your blood glucose concentrations are going to be super low, that's fab. You'll probably lose a lot of weight on it, so that's going to help lower your blood pressure, but your LDL cholesterol might go up. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, if you have a, a ketogenic diet and you could make it super high in monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, that could fix a lot of the stuff for you. Um, a whole food plant-based diet, super high fiber, low saturated fat, that has been shown to get remission of type 2 diabetes too without weight loss. Um, so there's lots of things that can work, but but those are the things you're focusing on, blood glucose, uh, cholesterol levels, um, and blood pressure. And obviously weight, because weight drives each of those things. Yeah, so... So is it is there a lot of intersection then between uh, or overlap between the diets that are recommended for optimal cardiovascular health and those that are recommended for optimal diabetes health? Or... Yes, I would say there are. Um, I, I've never seen a sensible person in nutrition say have as much saturated fat as you want. Uh, all the evidence and anyone, again, sensible in this space would say, yeah, you want to focus on replacing saturated fat with unsaturated fats. Whether you're going for a high fat or a low fat diet, you should be focusing on the quality of fats. Mm-hmm. Um, things like fibers are very useful for many reasons because they improve the gut microbiome that's linked to type 2 diabetes in many, many subtle ways. It's also linked to vascular function. So that's kind of a good thing. And the great thing about high fiber diets is there's almost no risk. So mm-hmm. you're looking at things that can be beneficial, but also things that are kind of a no brainer. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. what harm are you going to do by telling someone to eat nut seeds, um, veggies and so forth. Um, so yes, those are the crossovers where the diets really differ is, is really this argument about carbs, fats, mm-hmm. and to a certain extent proteins, but certainly carbs and fats. Yeah. So you know, this, this, I think there's a lot of focus in the diet world in general right now on insulin as, you know, as the key to everything. Um, and so if you, I guess I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on to what extent that focus makes sense in the diabetes context. And if it does make sense, how does that not preclude low fat diets? I mean, how can low fat diets, which have a lot of carbs in them still possibly be okay, given that they do drive an insulin response. And, and I, I know there's some nuance between, you know, good complex carbs and simple carbs and free sugars and intact sugars. So I wanted you to help unpack all the nuance within the carb category. Um, if you do truly believe that it's not as simple as avoiding carbs. Yeah, I do actually now. And, and I say this because we've just recently finished the study and I know of some other data that's also pointing towards this. This assumption we have that lowering carbs is going to lower your insulin, yeah. I don't think is as simple as that. Um, but there's another factor here. People always forget about weight. Mm. And weight is a huge driver of insulin. So if you lose weight, your fasting and postprandial insulin comes down. If you gain weight, both of them eventually go up. So 
whatever diet you can consume if it happens to be a high carb diet because you like that if that if you can lose weight on that diet your insulin will come down as well yeah. um i do think we need to figure out how to optimally reduce insulin and there's work out there that suggests that simply moderately reducing carb let's say from 50 percent of calories that most people have to 25 or 30 maybe doesn't have the effect that people think that it does on carbohydrates because in a healthy person your liver doesn't release much glucose at all after you eat because your your liver is super sensitive to insulin and you basically stop or the, the processes of glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis really shut stop or shut down after you eat that probably doesn't happen in type 2 diabetes. So essentially your blood glucose is running high all the time in type 2. This is what our data suggests. So moderate changes in diet don't really affect that. Ah. So the idea that reducing carbs, you're going to automatically lower glucose and therefore automatically lower insulin, I don't think is, is that simple in type 2. I think you either need ketogenesis, so you need, you need low enough to get ketones up because ketones suppress hepatic glucose output um or I, i'm very interested in the role of replacing a lot of carb with protein because that seems to do the same thing mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on fasting diets i know some physicians are saying that that's a, acceptable for diabetics and others say but i need to eat every three hours meal frequency is so important that's just not a viable strategy i think a lot of this depends on the the type of uh, diabetes a person has, whether they take um, insulin or sulfonylureas, uh, medications that could cause a hypoglycemic event. In general, my view is that fasting, uh, the data has been overinterpreted. People are too excited about fairly poor quality studies. Um, and I think the cardiometabolic effects seem to be driven very much by the timing of fasting. So where you're looking at time restricted feeding, the early time restricted feeding where you eat in the morning and not mm -hmm. in the afternoon or evening, mm -hmm. that is so antisocial. I mm -hmm. have had in mm -hmm. my career, I have lots mm -hmm. of patients on super, super low carb, keto, paleo, vegetarians, vegans, people can stick to any diet, patients that I've got. I have never had a patient that can stick to early time restricted feeding. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I mean, what do you do? Like, you wanna go to the pub with your friends, you wanna go out to dinner, you wanna go mm -hmm. to the cinema, you just have no social life. So, so if the cardiometabolic event, uh, effects are driven by early time restricted feeding and actually maybe worsen with late time restricted feeding, I almost think that's a non-starter. Um, and now obviously that kind of time restricted feeding is something that you do the same pretty much every day. So the idea is that you have this long fasting window and you do the same thing every 24 hours. I think that is still a better approach than the intermittent fasting where you're maybe fasting on a Monday, eat Tuesday, mm. fast Wednesday, eat mm -hmm. Thursday. Mm -hmm. um, simply because so much of glucose homeostasis is driven by circadian rhythms. Mm. People take their medications at a given time. Uh, they get into a routine of eating certain things. So regularity can be very useful yeah. in type 2 diabetes uh, for, for, for predicting and controlling your blood glucose concentrations. So I wouldn't recommend the intermittent fasting where you're alternate day fasting to any patients with type two, except if it was a good way to help them lose weight. Mm -hmm. And they, they weren't on any medications really apart from metformin. Yeah. 
I've done a lot of looking, uh, last year I was spending some time digging into different weight loss strategies and how they compare because there's so much controversy there. And it was interesting to see how consistently weight loss was associated with um, this glucose control and, and various sort of cardiometabolic cardio risk factors um, yeah. that any diet on its own would say, look, we did, we improved cardiometabolic risk. And you're like, but every diet can claim that. So it, it was usually the diets were claiming that their diet provided that unique benefit when really it seems to be a benefit of weight loss. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is why this is the control group, why the control group is so important. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it, is there a simple explanation for why, I mean, I guess the, from the weight loss perspective, how much weight loss moves the needle for cardiometabolic um, risk and um, yeah, I guess, sorry, that's the question. Like how much matters? And, you know, if you're slightly overweight, is you're going to, are you going to get as much benefit as someone who's much more overweight? And is, you know, how does that answer depend on your starting point? Mm, I mean, this is a, a difficult question to answer because it, it differs so much between people. I mean, as a general rule, the relationship between weight and cardiometabolic risk is linear. Mm. Um, and probably if you looked at enough people over time, even if they were losing two kilograms, you would see benefit. We even have some type two diabetes prevention studies where, you know, over a period of three years, people are losing 1.92 kilos, which really isn't much, but that's enough um, to prevent type two diabetes. Um, so any helps. Where I think things are getting more interesting is what we've realized about remission that there's kind of been this idea that, oh, aim for moderate weight loss, 5% weight loss, mm -hmm. it's going to help lower your blood glucose. And for sure it does, because there's that linear relationship. There does seem to be a cutoff point, there a threshold to get remission. Mm -hmm. um, so the moderate 5% weight loss doesn't seem to do that much to, to help someone come off their medications and get mm -hmm. durable remission for type two. Whereas that seems to be a say a 10 kilogram cutoff or maybe 10% of body weight. And that I think is pretty interesting that mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that that relationship is necessarily linear. I think there's, there's clearly a some kind of physiological threshold people meet where they get normalization of beta cell function, for example. Mm -hmm. So you define remission as not needing medications or how is, how is it defined? Uh, there's there's no cons international consensus on what a definition is, but for me, a, a good one is definitely having a blood glucose level not in the diabetic range and being off medication for at least two months. Mm -hmm. um, the bariatric surgery literature often uses more strict definitions where it's uh, having had normal blood glucose for two years and not being on medications for two mm. years. So, you know, that's, you're really getting into, yeah. oh, they've, they've had remission for a long time. Um, I think an important thing to note here is whether it's normal blood glucose as in normal glycemia or pre-diabetic blood glucose, mm -hmm. because currently the definition allows for pre-diabetes. Okay. So they would say you've got remission, even if you've got pre-diabetes, as long as you're not mm -hmm. on meds. And I mm -hmm. think uh, we need to be careful about that because when, when people have pre-diabetic levels of glucose, they still have impaired beta cell function and a lot of insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of suggests you're only getting to that range you haven't fixed everything underneath that could be fixed. Mm -hmm. So I want to start shifting into making this, you know, putting this into practice for people. So if the, if the answer seems to be a, according to our, our conversation and some of the other uh, literature that I've been digging up that, you know, there are multiple dietary strategies that work 
Um, the ones that allow you to lose a bit of weight are probably going to be more effective. That's a, that's one of the biggest drivers through which they work. Um, so, you know, how do people put this into practice? Losing weight, we know, is not easy. So how do people figure out which one? I guess one thing is also how do you figure out which one's going to work for you? Is it just a matter of personal fit or is there anything else that helps people figure out which one's going to be the diet that works best for them? I mean, in my practice, uh, I have the luxury of, of being very individual with things. And often I will talk with the patient about the literature and what it shows and, and try to understand their goals. Because if a person's goal is, I want to get off my meds, I want to get rid of type 2 diabetes, then you need more dramatic options. And I would talk through that and what it would take. And very often for me, the two really good options are low carb and high protein. I, combining the two, I think is important. Um, probably keto as well. So keto is kind of different to low carb, high protein because you want moderate protein, but much lower carb. And then the kind of meal replacement approach. Hmm. And so what I would do is I have meal plans drawn out, you know, pictures of, of meals, examples and so forth. And I would talk with the patient about how these diets work how long they would need to stick to it for. Um, you know, for example, so with the meal replacement, you can go back onto your normal diet um, after about two to three months, for example, and that might be beneficial to some people, whereas others like a, a food approach. So something like low carb might be better. So with remission, I do that. Um, sorry, so, sorry, so, but what, I don't I don't know. I'm not I'm familiar with the meal replacement strategy. What is that? Oh, oh, sure. So, so this was a big trial called the direct remission trial that came out in 2017 mm -hmm. and it was done in primary care so it, it's really applied so it's it's not like a clinical really intense research study um, it was delivered by nurses and dietitians within primary care and they used meal replacements so shakes and soups for ah. a period of two to four months and the aim was to get them to lose 15 kilograms of weight loss and the reason they were aiming for that kind of threshold is because they they did modeling from gastric banding so this is where not the this isn't the bypass this is where you have a band just around the stomach and where that threshold of weight loss was achieved that increased a person's chance of getting remission substantially so they kind of said to themselves the investigators let's do a dietary study and aim for that 15 kilogram weight loss mm -hmm. and so they, they pretty much achieved it they got to about 13 14 kilograms uh losing weight over two to four months then they transitioned to normal food intake they had lots of support uh, and maintained their weight at one year and so that was sorry the study sorry one very method question did they replace every meal with or yeah okay. yeah for two for two four months uh, yes more or less i mean you could get someone to lose 15 kilograms if you did, you know, 750 cal uh, calories a day for yeah. maybe six weeks, depending yeah. on the starting weight. Is. This, yeah. this, in this study, some people did it, I think that quickly, but they had quite a pragmatic approach because they wanted people to stick to it. So if people had a wedding uh, yeah. or maybe you had something challenging happening yeah. in their life and they were like, you know, I just want to go back to food for a couple of days, they had that flexibility. Mm -hmm. So, it was mostly meal replacement, okay. but some people some people took, I think, four months to get to their target okay. weight. But it's basically an ultra low calorie diet on the order of 800 calories a day, and you make it easy to achieve that by providing the food, or you know, and, and that yeah. covers all your bases nutritionally in the same time. 
Yeah, so they have to be nutritionally complete because yeah. you're following these these diets for such a long time. So that means yeah. all vitamins and minerals are supplied. Yeah. Um, and one thing I would note, lots of people hear this and they think, oh my God, shakes and soups and nothing else for two, three months. Are you kidding me? Patients actually love it. And people also think, oh, there's no way you could survive on 800 calories. You would mm -hmm. just feel terrible. Actually, the opposite is true. What happens is you you we think it's probably partly ketosis that you mm -hmm. can actually feel terrible in the first couple of days as you adjust to it. Once your body gets into ketosis, that so your your energy restriction is so great, and obviously your carbohydrate intake is so low, you start to oxidize fat as a primary mm -hmm. fuel source, um, and you generate ketones. That gives people it seems to a bunch of energy, mental clarity. They feel mm -hmm. fantastic, yeah. and then of course for many people the weight's coming off so quickly they love it mm -hmm. and it gives them a period of food and and maybe bad behaviors or unhealthy behaviors they've, they've adopted over time um so that then you can kind of start again when you're transitioning yeah. to food yeah i have a friend who was doing um a, something similar for her church every january and she was speaking of the increased mental clarity that she was experiencing and and and, and sort of surprising energy as well yeah, yeah, exactly. The hard bit comes when you've got to transition to food. Yeah, I wanted to wrap up pretty soon and move on to the the prevention side of things. But any, I guess, last practical tips for people, you know, it just can feel overwhelming to how to get started and how to prioritize maybe the most impactful changes you can make. So what I hand out to patients and I use a lot is a, a plate planner. So it's basically a circle which represents a plate. And I focus on proportions of food. Mm -hmm. um, and I always, with every patient, whether it's vegan, vegetarian, or, or animal uh, protein, is focus on getting maybe a quarter, maybe a third of the plate from protein always. And then often I recommend that they replace the starches. So that's the things like potatoes and rice with lentils or, or chickpeas. So go the pulses mm -hmm. route. And so I focus on changing proportions. And it always involves lowering starch and always involves increasing protein. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, that's helpful. Yeah, I, I, I also find meal, meal plating um, to be a really good strategy for just making sure you're staying balanced and, um, and thinking about what, what you eat, right? And, and not doing too much maths. I mean, I, mm. I don't think people want to weigh that out. So I kind of say, okay, yeah. what would you normally have? And if they have like a, a spaghetti bolognese and it's half a plate of spaghetti maybe two tablespoons of veg i say okay have half a plate of veg and two tablespoons of of um spaghetti mm -hmm. yeah well thank you very much for um this fascinating conversation about diabetes management um is there anything in this field that people can look forward to um that's coming in the next few years in terms of obviously we don't have every question answered so is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to in terms of tools or information and unanswered questions that people can look forward to yeah i think there are two things i think the first thing and I, i'm doing a lot of this research myself is looking at more weight neutral ways to get control of type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. uh, as the population is getting older people develop type 2 at a, a, a lower weight i have many patients who are 75 years old they they want to get remission but they don't want to lose 10 kilograms mm -hmm. uh, and i think we'll get more data showing that there are ways that we can do that and maybe yeah. not without any weight loss but maybe we can get remission with three to four kilograms weight loss i think mm -hmm. that's exciting I think the second thing is we're going to learn more about how beta cells can come back to life. Mm -hmm. What we've 
assumed for a long time is as you develop type 2, your beta cells basically break. They no longer work properly and you can't get them back. Uh, I think we'll see more in that space in the sense that we can hopefully reverse a bit more of the pathophysiology of type 2. Well, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Um, is there, if people want to learn more about you and um, you know your work, what's the best place to learn more? Um, so I'm very act active on Twitter. So um, my um, name, if that's what you call it, is Dr. Under... <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I'm so old. <laughs> Dr. Underscore, underscore guest. So two underscores. That tends to be more sciencey. I interact with a lot mm. of other academics on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram with the same handle, and it's a lot more uh, patient-friendly. So I give tips, yeah. um, talk about recent studies that have come out, and try to put things into lay terminology.